From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, highlights of our weekday program on race, education, and our shared humanity. Today, we have an ancestral altar in our home. African healing rituals. There is no like book of healing rituals that people do. I think it depends on what you use in, in creation with candles, with water, with incense and other things. How you acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the suffering with music, with drums, etc. And then be able to release that back out. Spirituality without formal religion. Always engage creator. But if you need to walk away for your own mental self-help, do so. And social change. And Martin Luther King was one of the most hated man in America. It's interesting when I see white people using some of his quotes, and I'm like, but you all hated him. <laughs> I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening. This is another one of those producer picks days where instead of segments from several programs, we're bringing you excerpts from a single episode with one outstanding guest. The Reverend Kwame Pitts is an ordained clergywoman. She's a womanist theologian. She runs the Community of Good Neighbors, a mobile food pantry in Buffalo, and she works with the Oasis community, giving people a spiritual outlet, even if they're not into formal religion. She's also very outspoken on racial equity and is a scholar and practitioner of various African rituals. And it's that last one that brings her in. We spoke at length back in January on the National Day of Racial Healing. One of the things that I routinely do in my daily life is first and foremost start at my ancestral altar. One of the reasons why these rituals are so important um, is because these are something that have been taken away from us and they're not used on a daily basis. They're not used as a part of our culture, as African descent culture here in the United States. These rituals that we did to connect with creator, to connect to ancestors, were deemed to be heretical, were deemed to be evil, and we were told to stop doing them. It was beaten out of my ancestors. It was oppressed um, away from my ancestors, all of those things, and so therefore, we had to take up other practices so that we could at least survive here in the United States, and we are still are surviving. What I find is that now in the past 10, 15 years, I've seen a huge shift um, where more and more people are becoming more open with their practices. So um, we have an ancestral altar in our home. Um, I have mine that has my ancestors on there. Um, these are ancestors that I have known or of ancestors that I have maybe perhaps not known. For example, my great-great-grandmother, um, she passed two years before I was born, but she was heavily influenced in my mother's life. And so I sit there um, with a candle lit. I talk with them because they empower me to do what I do, and I also know that I have a responsibility and accountability to my ancestors. So I'm always asking them just to be with me in everything I do, and I hope that I am representing them out in the world. And that's kind of where I, I begin my day. Um, I do have a spiritual altar where I go to pray to creator and to spirit and ask for the same empowerment as I go about my day. It's, and it, the prayers may change depending on what I'm facing or what I'm doing. And this might be a, a good point to ask where that comes from. Uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, it's your ancestors and you spoke of some of the heritage. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular piece of African heritage that your ancestral altar comes from? 
most of the practices you'll find with people of African descent who do this type of, and, and the way in which they practice all comes from Yoruba, from West Africa. It should be noted that Christianity was not in West Africa. Now, North Africa, yes, we all know this. But in West Africa, there are no traces of Christianity, and Christianity was actually brought to West Africa as the missionaries came, as, as um, we were, I won't, I, won't say, I won't say invaded. What I would say is they colonized, the colonization mm-hmm. of West Africa. That's where Christianity was brought. I have read many articles from different celebrities that are from Ghana, from Nigeria, places who have literally spoken about how Christianity ruined their culture. And we're seeing some of the effects today. So colonization is damning. Oppression is damning. Denying someone of the way in which they connect to creator is very damning. There's a reason why we had all these rituals, all these ways we connect with creator. There are many different ways in which the world connects with creator, and it's specific on the culture. And I think that has something that has to be preserved and uplifted, because especially now in these times, when we're dealing with so many things from environmental change to... Um, some of the oppression we're seeing at different levels of brutality, people lean back on their faith and on their spiritual traditions. It's a way to help. It's also a way in which people connect as community to different stages of their lives. And so that's why all these rituals are so important, whereas in American society, we don't do a lot of that. And a lot of the rituals we have are tied to capitalism. You, you spoke of the need for it. We are recording this interview in a, a studio less than a block from the top's shooting scene. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned at the top of the program, today is uh, deemed a, a national day of racial healing. Mm-hmm. How does the stuff you're talking about interface with the needs after something like 514? So when that happened and such violence, we have to recognize that that ground there in Tops is wholly considered to be holy and sacred now because people lost their lives. And so one of the things that's very important is that in American culture, we think when death happens, it happens, we're supposed to process it in seven, 10 days and get on with our lives. In most African-American cultures and most African diaspora thinking, we know that our ancestors are still speaking and still with us. And so there has to be a way that we honor them and even while we bury them, we then continue to honor them, knowing that they're still continuing to speak with us. And I know there were a lot of prayers and stuff that were done at the site. And for the most part, I mean, to, to also recognize that African-American Christianity is something that is also completely and uniquely different. My ancestors took up on Christianity because that's a way to survive, and they made it their own. They heard, even in Scripture, which was very alien to them, that God still stands with the oppressed. And so that's what we saw happening. We saw religious leaders and other black clergy out there praying um, for the whole, for the community. But there are other healing rituals, and it really depends. There is no, like, book of healing rituals that people do. I think it depends on what you use in in creation with candles, with water, with incense, and other things. Um, How you come together, how you gather people together, together. acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the suffering with music, with drums, et cetera, um, and then be able to release that back out. And it's not just a one-time thing. I think people think it's a one-time thing, it's done. Healing rituals happen every day. People go back into these particular traditions that I named earlier. 
strictly for healing. They can be empower, They can be powerful when marching and asking and demanding for civil and human rights. But most often, sometimes they return back to these particular traditions because strictly because of healing, because of the systemic trauma that my people, my ancestors have endured in this country for over five centuries. I'm going to make an assumption here, and correct me if it's a if it's a wrong one, mm-hmm. that this is not that this idea mm-hmm. of embracing the old rituals mm-hmm. is not mainstream among the African American community. No. What would happen if it was? How would it help? That's complicated to answer, and I'll tell you. We've why. got time. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons why it's not mainstream at this point is because we've been told, again, like I said earlier, we've been conditioned that it's an e- there are evil practices. And also, too, a lot of the things that happen in black church culture come from our traditions. So, for example, when people talk about being touched by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, having that experience, all that is is possession. So in these particular traditions, this is a way of ancestors coming down, connecting by spirit through someone, through possession, which is not the demon possession that you right. see in the movies. It's, you know, no, this is a way for ancestors to connect, to give instructions, wisdom, to give people structure, to point them in the right direction. That's all that that is. And the songs and the drumming, all of that came from West African culture. That's all that that is. We adapted that to Christianity so it would be acceptable. And I, again, I'm not saying because I grew up in a Christian household. And, and this might be a point to interject, too. You are an ordained Thrin minister. Yes, yes. I'm ordained clergy. So I realized, and I actually have been reflecting the past couple of days about the fact that even when I was a teenager, I began to search for something else. I'm, I've always known that God is real. God is connected, et cetera. I don't, I don't look on, I, I'm trying to figure out how to put this. With the civil rights movement, Christianity was very front and present. Some of the things and the ways in which my ancestors, my family have walked through things, Christianity has definitely been up that bomb. But I have also been searching and realizing that at one point I started to question Christianity because I'm like, there has to be something else out there. And hearing gospel songs talking about the only way to get to God is through Jesus. Then my question was, okay, so what about my ancestors who did not practice it, but were still very wholly connected? And so, yeah, like, I think it's complicated. And I think if people begin to educate themselves, because that's the one main thing. You have to educate yourself and look, oh, look at the comparisons of what we do now, what our ancestors did. Oh, okay. One of the things I point people to is actually in the Hebrew scriptures, in the very beginning, where it says God gathered the heavenly council. And I always ask the question, okay, if it wasn't the angels, because they were lower, and if it wasn't us, who was God talking to? And that gives the argument of, that means that all of these other deities that we hear about in different cultures probably were that heavenly council. Because he said, let us make humankind in our image. That meant all, from whether you're Hindu, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of that was around the heavenly council. And so why is that a bad thing? Why do we have to conform to just one thing? I think that's important. So like, I, I think it's complex. It really depends on, because for some people too, Christianity, that's where they feel connected to God. That's absolutely amazing. Then there are some people like, you know, I'm questioning Christianity. And part of the reason why they're questioning Christianity 
is because of what we're, ha we're happening now. The evangelical Christian movement is pervasive and it's dangerous and it does not affirm our humanity or allow us to be authentic. So when that happens, people walk away from the church and rightfully so. I, when I, in my conversations with folks, if they say, well, I feel guilty because I feel like I need to walk away, then go ahead and walk away. Always engage creator. But if you need to walk away for your own mental self-help, do so. And this is where the Oasis community comes in. Yes. You do a lot of work with uh, groups of people that are spiritual, but not necessarily religious. religious. Right. Um, is that a local group? Is that a, so, a, I don't want to call it a congregation because I'm sure if they're not religious, they're not sitting in pews. Right. But, no. but explain what that looks like. So during the pandemic, I had a lot of conversations with a lot of my friends across the country and, and having conversations with folks I knew who were spiritual, not religious, and them telling me, I wish there was a place I could go that was not a church. They said, well, I would go to church because that's all I know, but then they, people would try to quote unquote convert me and I don't want to be converted. So it is a local group. It's taken a bit to get started because of my work with the mobile food pantry, which I love. I love mm -hmm. CGN very much so. In the community work that of we're good doing. neighbors. Community of good neighbors, right? Um, I love the work that we do. So it's been a little hard getting the oasis <laughs> out the ground. Um, but I'm hoping that it will be a place for people who identify as spiritual, not religious, to come into a space. Um, we can have conversation. It'll be a space where they can connect with other people who feel that, feel that matter and also do activism work. Because one of the other things, as I said, I mentioned before, is the fact that when you're trying to do work around whether people are LGBTQIA+, um, when we're talking about systemic racism and oppression, sometimes the church is not very like, oh yes, we're gonna support you. They're always like, let's sing Kumbaya. No, this is a place where you have the freedom to do so where you won't feel like your faith or your spiritual group or your tradition is gonna hold you back. All right, now let me ba jump back though to again, the community of people who are grieving after tops, mm -hmm. if they integrate more of these kind of practices into their lives, mm -hmm. I picture a scenario where it will certainly reaffirm their heritage, mm -hmm. give them racial pride. Right. But I'm wondering if there's something more going on there. What else would it do? Again, that is so difficult because it's not. Because we're kind of talking about the nature of God. Right. Well, we're talking about the nature of God, but we're also talking about people's piety and the way they meet God. Because for some people, they're struggling with the conception of God. Like, okay, this happened, God, I'm done with you because I can't come out of my home. Now I'm afraid that another white supremacist is going to come in the neighborhood. I will tell you when the Charleston massacre happened, um, I was, I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, so I moved here three years ago. But when the Charleston, when Charleston and I were murdered, I was pastoring, that was my first call and my first job as an ordained pastor um, in a suburban church in, in, in the suburbs of Chicago. And my husband was extremely nervous that someone was gonna walk into that congregation with a gun and decide because I was a black woman that I did not deserve to be a pastor of that all white congregation and shoot me. So I think it really, really, again, it really, really depends. I can't prescribe and say, oh, it's going to make you feel better. Because it may leave you with more of the questions. Like, so if we have these traditions and this wasn't taught to me, because one of the things I've also found is a lot of people don't know about the traditions, whether it's voodoo, Santalia, Lucumi, Paolo. Um, and a lot of people also sort of shy away from root work or hoodoo. 
which again is wholly African-American. Um, and in having conversations, especially because I'm a Gen Xer, so in having conversations with other folks, we're like, oh, our grandmothers used to have dream books. That's, that's root work, that's hoodoo. Um, you'd go down the street to someone who you knew if you were having a problem with your spouse or someone, they would do something, give you something, and that person would go away. Well, all that is root work of hoodoo. Um, and so for many people to be shocked about that, be like, oh, Oh, I didn't realize the thing. I didn't, I didn't realize. know it was a thing, and I didn't know it was a thing that came from my heritage. Right. And so for them, they this may mean that they go on a journey of searching, and they may incorporate some of the things. It just really depends on your level of what healing you have to do and what exposure you've had. Because the other thing I've found is that African-American Christianity really stops talking about this stuff. Emilia says, nope, that's evil, that's demonic. No, our ancestors don't speak to us anymore. They're dead. They're waiting for Jesus. But isn't isn't that the way of religion? I think of some of the the Roman paganism that mm -hmm. didn't make it into standard quote unquote Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, history is written by the conqueror. The surviving right. religion gets to dictate what the surviving religion maintains. I will definitely say this, and this may be an unpopular thing to say. We like that here. Go ahead. <laughs> But when Constantinople adopted Christianity, that was the beginning of the end of Christianity as we know it. Because before that, it was the way. And it was very, very just open. People came together. They sang, maybe sang a song. They heard a word. They broke bread together. They remembered. They prayed for one another. And then when they left, they went out and did the same for their, for their next-door neighbor, stranger, etc. When it became the, the religion of the empire, that was it. Because then suddenly everything, every law was used to divide and be divisive with the people. I mean, we talk about like Martin Luther. So like Martin Luther got extremely angry because he saw how the Catholic Church was going to be. Martin so he Luther, took the 95 Theses, nailed them to the door right. of the cathedral and said, I've got my own thing now. Well, here's the thing. Martin Luther never wanted to be Lutheranism. Right. He didn't want to be a reformer. He, 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 or he, didn't, he, he didn't want to establish a new denomination. No, he just wanted to be a reformer. He wanted the Catholic Church to stop doing what they were doing, hurting and harming people, keeping everything sacred for themselves and not translating out, not making things in the vernacular. The reason why they became Lutheranism because people would talk about the people who followed Luther. And that's how Lutheranism was born. Um, and so, like, all this rebellion, all this, I mean, I think God does not mind when we question. I think God does not mind when we search. I think that's the times when I think God feels closest to us because we're asking the questions. We're not accepting something blindly. We're asking. Jesus asked questions. Romans and German Lutherans are a little bit of a sidetrack, though. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to how Christianity uh, uh I don't, is persecuted even the right word, um, changed some of the beliefs of the African diaspora? So, and if you've watched, like, for example, I would suggest everyone watch, like, for example, Harriet, the movie that came out by Harriet Tubman, um, or even watching Roots, which is a miniseries back in the 70s that talked about enslavement. Still um, valid today? Still holds up? Yeah, in fact, I can't watch it. Like, everybody I know have watched it, and nobody can watch it again because it's so painful. Um, but in there's a scene in the very beginning where the enslaved are sitting in the dirt, in the grass. Their masters are sitting on the porch, and there is a black slave preacher. 
and he's preaching out of a particular text that says, slaves, be good to your masters. Mm. That's a very powerful statement because that's all they were told, that they had to be good, and that their freedom would not come in this life but would come when they died. That continually, keeping the continual cycle. And one of, and I cannot remember off the top of my head right now, but one of the particular saints that a lot of people worship and churches are named after talked about the fact that the Roman Catholic Church did not want to get involved with freeing slaves because they wanted to keep their position of power. That was more important. And saying, and here's another thing, baptism. It's not, but baptism, clearly it says in baptism that once you are baptized into a community, you are free. And then that point, the people see you as another sibling, brother, sister, etc. My ancestors, before they were put on slave ships, were baptized and then baptized and literally put on slave ships and put into the most violent environments I think they could ever be in. That's not what baptism was for. This is why a lot of times people don't want to be baptized because I feel like it's that trauma coming in. If you're baptized, you're supposed to see each other with a reflection of God. But people get baptized and they're still seen as subhuman. Groupthink. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to roots. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a scene in there, and I'm sure it's, it's part of sort of common knowledge, culture, pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the marriage ceremony of jumping over a broom. Mm-hmm. That's not part of Christianity these days, but at once, uh, once upon a time, it was certainly accepted at least as part of the African-American ritual experience. How did stuff like that drop away? Because of violence, because of doctrine, because of dogma, um, because telling, telling us that we could not practice the way we practice because we were savages. I mean, talk about the dark continent, the use of the word blackness is seen as being evil. Um, there is a scene in Malcolm X where Malcolm is in jail before he becomes Malcolm X and he's learning how to read. And he said, look up this word black. And he saw all the negative connotation. And then he said, look up the word white. And he said, wait a minute, why all these positive words for white? And it's all of that, all of those things together. Again, the reason why it was just taken out because we, my ancestors were subjected to something so horrific that whatever we were told so that we could survive, we just went along with. That's why there's a whole tribe that decided that they did not want to be enslaved, so they walked into the ocean. They would rather die free than die enslaved and in pain. Reverend Kwame Pitts is with us. She's with the Community of Good Neighbors here in Buffalo. She also has, and we spoke about this earlier, the Oasis Community, a group for those who are spiritual but not necessarily religious. A lot of her work has been dealing with healing rituals and sacred theology, and certainly some of the African-American traditions that you've heard her say have been suppressed over a while. This is Buffalo What's Next. Our Producers Picks program brings you a second chance to hear important interviews from our weekday discussion on race and culture. Today's highlight comes from back in early January and the National Day of Racial Healing. A quick reminder, entire interviews from our program are online at WBFO.org. We'll be right back.
WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. You're listening to our weekly Producers Picks program from WBFO's Buffalo What's Next. I'm Dave Debo. Today, a look at religion and healing rituals and more with the Reverend Kwame Pitts. She's a Buffalo area minister with a community of good neighbors, mobile food truck. She's a theologian steeped in African rituals and practice. Let's talk more about the origins of some of those rituals. Uh, you mentioned it briefly that there is root work, there's Santeria. Uh, there, there's a whole panoply yeah. of different things there. Yeah. So one of the things that's celebrated at the very beginning of the year in January 1st is Haitian, the day of the Haitian Revolution. Many people know about the Haitian Revolution. This was a time when the enslaved in Haiti decided they were going to take back their land. They had already been subjected to economic enslavement. Their families had been torn apart. Their lands had been stolen from them all by Napoleon and the rest of the French the French uh, government, soldiers, etc. What people don't know is that they went into a sacred part of in Haiti in the forest, in the jungles, and they went through a ceremony because voodoo is the official religion of Haiti. Still today? Still today. Okay. It's still today. They went in and they went through a ceremony where they called down a particular loa, or spirit, that they're loas, and you'll find different, you'll find different names for different spirits or deities in different traditions. But in 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 voodoo, it's loa. They called down a particular loa and asked her for empowerment. Three days they went through ceremony. Three days they went through rituals, and when they got done, they were already fired up. So they went out, and that's when they started to decide mass exit of, of, of Napoleon the French by mass slaughtering and what they had to do. Um, but voodoo is, again, this connection between spirit and with humankind. The Wa are there to help, to encourage, to empower. There's nothing evil. You see a lot of stuff about zombies and all that stuff and like that. I yeah. think I need people to understand. That's Hollywood. That's not. This is all Hollywood. Yeah. Voodoo is a tradition where it's healing and helpful and instructive to Haitian people. Um, Lukumi or Santeria, um, many of you all know, have probably seen the video called Hold Up by Beyonce, where she comes out, she's all in this yellow. She is uh, manifesting um, Ochun, who is the Orisha of all things beauty and love, but, Orisha, but Ochun also is a warrior. Uh, Orisha, what is that? So Orisha is like a deity, let's say okay. a sub-deity. Let's, let's put in this action. You have Creator. Creator, when the name in Lukumi Santeria is Olo, Olofi, um, and then you have other, so it's creator, it's then spirit, it's then ancestors, and then it's Orisha. So there's all this divine harmony, they're all connected. And what we're supposed to do is be connected in that divine harmony together. Interesting that there's a low, uh, a layer below mm -hmm. ancestors. Ancestors are pretty high on the- Yes, the and yes. In fact, a lot of the work that happens in Lucumia Santeria, when you interact with someone, a priest, or a priestess of Lucumi Santeria, when they do readings for you, when they consult the Orisha of Wisdom, which is Arumala or Arula, 
the ancestors are the ones that actually do a lot of the answering. They're actually the ones that navigate. They will tell you what path to go on. And so the, so ancestors and Orisha are kind of in sort of connection with one another. Um, so that really is where Loa is mostly spirit. Orisha is seen more as a sub-deity or a deity. Um, and so there's Lukumi or Santeria. Again, the difference is Lukumi really is traditional. Santeria uses the saints. So, for example, St. Lazarus in Santeria is Baba Uaye, and so forth and so on. So there's that piece. Um, Candoble and Paulo, very much in Brazil. I don't know a lot about that. I only know surface things. Again, in Candoble, same sort of um, use of Orisha. They're just named a little differently, spelled a little differently. Paulo, I think, will be almost closer to probably who do in the, in the essence that they're also, again, working with spirits, um, some very ancient. Um, but all of these traditions are all about healing, all about how we're to conduct our lives, how we're to keep harmony with one another, all of that. If anyone tells you, well, that's all black magic, no. Because that's actually a huge no-no in all those traditions. We don't, we don't do that. It's not to be done um, because what you do to someone will come back upon you. Karma. Karma. So we always practice the ways in which we practice um, is to do, again, healing for others, healing for a community, and just learning. All right, now take me back to Africa, Yoruba. So Yoruba is where all of these things came from. Again, some of the same traditions. Um, there was a story that I had heard, I had seen on this particular documentary done about food, that in Benin, they were trying to escape the colonizers, the white colonizers that were coming in, and so this group, or this tribe wanted to run. And so this hawk showed them the way to escape into a particular island where they could not be reached. And so that's where all these people came, and that's where their version of voodoo, or the original version of voodoo, still hangs true today. There are other things that happen in Yoruba, but there's a reflection of them in each of these traditions. And that is also still practiced today, even though that there is obviously Christianity in West Africa from birth to death. It seems as if the only place, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that ritual has really survived is perhaps within the church, within the Catholic church, where mm -hmm. you have the monks swinging the thurible <laughs> and the ringing the bells and the incense. Right. Right. And, and I don't mean it in any derogatory way. I'm sure there are a lot of people that obviously embrace mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm raising it is because it is embraced in such a formal setting and everywhere else it seems to have just fallen away. One of the things is that most people go to church for these particular rituals, birth, death, marriage, confirmation, all of that. Um, that's high liturgy, what we call in the Lutheran church with all the, what we call smells and bells that does happen. <laughs> um, but most people go to church for these rituals and that's where they leave them. That's the difference. The difference is they go and they're like, oh, we can only do this here in church. Yet in these other traditions, you're supposed to do them all the time because God is everywhere. And that's where you meet your ancestors. That's where you meet creator. That's where you meet spirit. I think for a lot of people, there's comfort in those particular rituals, like, like communion. Communion is a ritual where I strongly, as, as I'm doing communion, I strongly tell people this is where God meets you. In any church that I've been in, I tell them, listen, the table is open. It does not belong to this church. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to this denomination. It belongs to God. So if God calls someone up there for communion, there's a reason. We don't question it. 
And I think that's the problem. We've gatekeeped a lot of things to where people don't want to go to church because it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not worthy enough. Whereas I feel like in the traditions of my people, that's where we find worthiness. We're already, and, and knowing that one of the other stories that have, has come out of all of this is that when my ancestors were brought over, Yemaya, the Orisha of the oceans of water came with. And it's because of that, the Orishas are still waiting for us to realize that they're there and that these practices that we were told were evil are actually practices to heal us from all this trauma. We'll never, we'll, I think people also don't understand. People say, well, you should just go back to Africa. We can't. I don't know what tribe I come from. I have no idea. I know what percentage of African I am. I also know there's 20 You've done a DNA thing with ancestry done, or whomever. Right. I've done it with ancestry. I haven't done it with African ancestry, which is my next move. I know that there's 10 to 20% of me that's either British or Scottish. I know that. Um, but I don't know what tribe. I can't go back to the tribe. Ghana has opened up the doors to African Americans and said, please come back home. This is the other reason why ritual is so important in the African-American community, because we, don't, we still in this country are in exile. And going back to these traditions brings back our humanity and tells us, yes, who we are is important. We come from greatness. Africa was the birth of civilization. And so to know that and to understand that means we can stand up strong and, and tall. And like, yes, I can then fight for my civil and human rights. Yes, I can demand certain things. Yes, I can demand for change. Yes, I can demand for liberation because we came from it. You also mentioned earlier root work, which mm -hmm. doesn't strike me as such a formal ritual. Right. But nonetheless, something that people do. Explain. So most of root work, and actually my husband, who's actually doing his PhD work in this, <laughs> probably explains a little better than I, I'm going to explain now. So please excuse me. He's here. Um, Do we need to drag him onto the mic? <laughs> He's, <laughs> He's shaking his head, his head now. No. Um, <laughs> but root work really had to do with working with the earth, working with creation, and again, into healing, into ailments, into all of those things, into, again, that connectedness. It's, it's actual work, um, protecting oneself, healing oneself. So it's not the stuff you do each morning at your ancestry altar, nor is it genealogy. But or is it all of those? It's, the other thing is that root work is because of, it's wholly African-American and because of the work you're doing with the land, with herbs, et cetera, um, is something that still can be done today. If something ails you, besides the fact that you're doing prayers and besides the fact that you're before your ancestral altar, you can then go to the herbs that you have in your home and mix something up to make. And I do that a lot, especially with teas. When we have a lot of, if we have ailments or things at home, that's kind of the first place we go. Um, and other ways in protecting oneself or guiding oneself, um, especially if you're in somewhere unfamiliar or you need to protect yourself from people who maybe perhaps are carrying so much negative baggage just because of life and the ways in which you can cleanse your home or cleanse yourself. Like that's the important. So that's sort of the, the again, the real work that happens. Um, and I think for African-Americans, it is important. To what degree is all of this I'm learning about most of it, much of it for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, to what degree is it out there? Is it being used? Is it arcane? No. Um, I've noticed in the past 10 to 15 years, there has been more of an opening and an awareness of all of these traditions, um, especially on social media now, especially on TikTok. You have a lot of folks who are talking about all these traditions, sharing 
what they've learned, all this stuff, you're coming more and more. As a womanist theologian, one of the things about being a womanist is that we're universalists. So a lot of the womanist theologians that I know also practice certain parts of these things in their lives. It's just natural because for women, um, one of the things that happens in a lot of these cultures, some of these culture, not cultures, excuse me, some of these traditions can be very patriarchal. That's just kind of how it is. But, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's a lesson in the role of the woman because we have more of a connection to divinity than when you hear a lot about like possession it usually comes through women because we have that connection. So I don't think it's arcane. I think it's becoming more and more accepted. People are learning more about it. And again, like I tell people, you can learn about it and decide, no, Christianity really is for you. Or you can decide you want to, you know, that Islam is for you or et cetera. You don't have to. It's not, we don't walk around converting people like, you. no. It's not an either or. It's not either or. No, no, no. You could be like, Christianity is great. This is where I am. This is where I'm rooted. Absolutely. But over top of it, I'm going to layer this African right. tradition of right. A, B, C, or D. Right. You know, and so like publicly, you could be like, this is what I do. But privately, this is what you do in your home to empower. I find that empowering oneself using these traditions from our culture empowers me to do the activism work that I do. Because in Christianity, I found I have been stifled. And that's sad to say as a leader. Although I have, I will say the community I'm a part of, being a part of Community Good Neighbors and being a part of the Senate that I'm a part of um, or the region that I'm a part of, they have embraced my activism work and they see me as a leader, which is amazing. But that's not the norm. Mm. And I think for many, many African-Americans, they are finding dissatisfaction with Christianity because they're finding that they can't be authentically who they are in the church saying, we need to take up this. We need to talk about police brutality, systemic racism, oppression, colonization. We need to talk about all these things. We need to talk about what's happening with our people in Haiti. We need to talk about what's happening when immigrants come over from West Africa, other parts of Africa, and are shunned. We have to have these conversations. But Christianity tells us, no, you can't. Everything has to be one. Nah, that's, I definitely know that's not how God wanted it to be. So the lack of discussion of those topics you feel is contributing to, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but, but, but the premise I think here is, you spoke earlier about people who are spiritual but not necessarily religious. Mm -hmm. Are they leaving religion because for them it's not touching on these issues adequately? Yes, I think so. Especially one of the things I found, um, especially in my work, um, <laughs> so I have a presence on a couple of campuses here in the area. Um, and a lot of the students I talk to are spiritual, not religious, and they explain to me why. And it's for that reason. Like, there's, there's this connection. So they do believe in God. But and is it because of the lack of activism? Or is it just because, I don't know, it doesn't relate for them anymore? Well, they're already active. They're already still being activists themselves. The problem is that Christianity is not Western Christianity, I will say, because I want to separate that from Eastern Christianity or any other form of it. But Western Christianity in this context has not said we have we we were a partner in enslavement we did not do enough we are sorry we are we have we are a partner in racism in this country economic instability all these things we have not we have not broken away from the empire because we are addicted to what the empire tells us and so therefore because of all of that that's why people walk away they can still be active but they need freedom because they don't want to walk into a church and someone say well 
I, I've been told. Yeah, it's okay, but don't believe that. Right. I've been told, talking about and affirming that Black Lives Matter is nothing more than Democratic propaganda. And I'm like, no. Really? Yeah, I've been told that. I have been told that speaking about these issues, I shouldn't be doing that. I should be just be telling people that Jesus loves them. Just stand up in every- the pulpit and give them a nice little sermon. Yes, I've been told that. And that's difficult because when I see my Because people, of who you are. <laughs> well, because of who I am and because of what I see out in the community, wherever I'm, where I was in Chicago, I'm here. When I see my people hurting, I can't just be quiet about it. And I ha- I've sermonized about a lot of stuff and people have given me flack. People have gotten angry with me. I'm like, well, that's who I am. Do you think it's an age divide? Uh, old, you said that some of the rituals are spreading really strongly on social media. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that the air quotes, young kids, not the grand, <laughs> not the grandmothers are in. I, so I, I also think, so I do know part of the generation, for example, Dr. Tracy Hux, who I met a couple of years ago at, at, uh, uh, the Academy, Associate Academy of Religion on that conference. Um, she can be considered to be an elder. She also practices, um, I believe she, I'm not sure what she practices, it was Lucumia Santaria, but she practices one of those. And so she's an elder. And so we do have elders who are practicing that. But the majority that is coming out now is between my generation, Gen X, and Gen Z. So that's where all this is coming from because we use social media a lot, we talk about it and stuff like that. I don't think it's an age divide. I think it's just really where you come from and what you believe. Because again, there are some people who, there are some elders who would agree with me and say, yes, that's amazing. I'm glad you're, you're looking at this. I'm glad you're, you're doing what you're doing. You're being a voice and you're all that stuff like that, both academic and, you know, personal. Um, there'll be some elders who would tell me that I, why am I walking away from God? Mm. I'm like, I'm not walking away from God. All I'm saying is that our people, we weren't, our ancestors were not Christian and people don't want to hear that. So you're not rejecting the Christianity, you're just layering heritage on right. top of it. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think- But if the heritage is, let, let, let me challenge that just for a second. Mm-hmm. If the heritage is spiritual, mm-hmm. I can understand the conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not my Christianity. That's right. not what you should be doing in your right. pulpit. Right. Um, the conflict there does to my mind seem perhaps unfortunate, but automatic. And I think really the core part of this, again, I, I've said this a number of times, the core part of this is racism. It is racism through the, uh, racism is America's original sin. And it's practiced so much and put in so much, it has seeped into our churches and our sacred places so much so that everything gets twisted to where people can't see or don't wanna see the truth, don't wanna talk about it. Um, even from where, like, for example, Dr. James Cone, who was the father of black liberation theology, who I actually got a chance to meet, um, talks about this in many of his books that the practical Christianity or the practical theology in the churches, they didn't want to address the academic because it was too challenging. They just want to believe that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm saved and da, 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 and, and X, Y, and Z, and I don't have to think about anything. Because when you, when you start thinking about your spirituality your faith, it can get real scary. I was told by a pastor many years ago, she's like, well, when you get into seminary, it's going to challenge your faith and you're just going to be, 
And actually, it didn't. It just opened up a whole bunch of stuff and got me thinking. And really, now that's interesting because I, I would have thought the same that mm-hmm. orthodoxy, mm-hmm. a dogma handed to you in a book, would start to close your mind. No, because in fact, a lot of my professors um, at LSDC, which is the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, actually told me to continue to keep exploring. And for that, that really helped me. And I questioned and I kept open. But for many people, they don't have that experience. And I recognize that. So when you're starting to see stuff in social media, um, whether you're on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, when you're starting to see all the stuff, that's a way of connecting. And that's what I think a key part of social media should be, educating folks. So again, you can make your own decisions. And that's why I said at the very beginning, when you talked about about what kind of healing rituals or they should, I don't know if the way I do healing rituals will be healing to someone. They have to find their own. And there's so many people who are exploring these things and ways in which to do it. Even if they wholly consider themselves to be African-American Christians, there are healing rituals that can be done using the Psalms, et cetera. Um, and for other people, they're like, no, I need to explore the traditions of our ancestors and see if that's something for me. So, and for many people, it may just be sitting and crying and wailing and weeping um, and then just getting up every day and, you know, going about their lives. Reverend Kwame Pitts is here. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Today is designated as a National Day of Racial Healing. And we thought it would be a good idea to talk about racial healing, but in the context of a variety of rituals, rituals that she has studied, rituals that she has embraced, and rituals that in some cases, as we were saying before the break, um, has, I don't want to say gotten you in trouble, but- but (laughs) No, it got me in trouble. Okay. (laughs) I was just going to say people raise their eyebrows, but they they got you in trouble. Yes. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Um, When I was at seminary, um, we we started a group called Seminarians for Justice. Um, And we participated in a number of marches that happened in Chicago. And actually my seminary got several letters after we had did a particular march um, calling me out and saying I should be this and I should be that. And they should be retraining me. Is this what they teach at seminary? Oh my God, this is just horrible. Um, So yes, it has got me in trouble. Okay. Did, uh, did, was there a threat of, uh, removing you from the seminary? No, no. my seminary actually backed me. So it wasn't like that. It was just people. So the community was pushing back or, or people at large, not even the seminary. People at large were were pushing back against the seminary. They were shocked. All right. You said something before the break that I want to delve into more. Racism is our original sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does religion play a role then, when, when you call it original sin, mm-hmm. does religion then play a role in getting over that and combating racism? And I, I guess I can ask that question two ways. Does it or should it? I will talk from the context of Christianity because that is the context I grew up in. I can't speak to Judaism or Islam, although I will say in some aspects of what I've seen in both traditions, I have seen more of a general, like we have, excuse me, that we have to do for other people. I'm not saying both of those are like more star or stellar. I'm just saying the context of Christianity, what I have seen is religion has been a deterrent to actually doing activism. In the 60s, during the civil rights movement, Yes. I mean, like this program is not only coming to you on the National Day of Racial Healing, but a day after Martin Luther King Day. Right. Reverend Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. led the civil rights movement. Yes. 
was he a pioneer in that way? I, I kind of thought that the civil rights movement and the churches, at least in the South in the 60s, were, were hand in hand. So there had always been a civil rights movement even before it became a huge thing, and that's because of the advent of media, of, of, of television media, of newspapers. I think also people forget very clearly, especially in this country, that Martin Luther King was one of the most hated man in America. It's interesting when I see white people using some of his quotes, and I'm like, but you all hated him. <laughs> so, and even when he wrote the letter to a Birmingham jail, letter from a Birmingham jail, there had been a, there had been a, a group of pastors, both black and white, who said, you can't be talking about this now. And he admonished all of them in that letter. And people don't read a letter to a Birmingham jail because they think, well, it's outdated. I think religion gets in the way of activism where it should not be because very clearly, again, as I said, the one when I talk to people about this and they talk about, oh, you should be more like Dr. King and you should just sit and pray. I'm like, okay, what was Jesus's commandment? And they like, first of all, first they pause. Uh, and I'm like... <laughs> Jesus says we're to love one another as we love God, right? And they go, yeah, I'm like, that's it. I also think that Christians forget that the New Testament is really the only holy book we should be reading because the Hebrew scriptures really are about the history. And so clearly Jesus also, I think the people also, this is very radical for me to say, but this has been said before, Jesus was a community activist, literally was showing us how exactly how to do this. And because of that, the empire saw him as a threat, deemed him to be a criminal, and wanted him dead. And we've seen that in the past 10, 15, 20 years of many black people who were seen as criminals, who were shot and killed simply because they're black. And my problem is, although churches will gather together and do all these you know, these memorials and stuff like that, yeah. then they don't go, they don't go back to addressing. I I have an issue with pro progressive Christianity that will not call out evangelical Christians on their stuff and say, absolutely not. The stuff you all are putting out is so toxic. This is why in America, westernized Christianity is dying. This is why there's a drop in members in churches. This is why there are a lot of people that I know who are clergy um, who are either leaving their calls or refuse to go to seminary because they're like, I can't. I can't. It's not life-fulfilling. It For us as pastors, it's not fulfilling. People think, no, we're drained. We're tired because we're supposed to do what we're called to do, and then we have either the institution or the churches that we serve, people telling us, no, you can't do that. We're not going to have the conversation. And yet you said earlier in the program that to some degree, you don't have a regular pulpit right now, but to nope. some degree you are fulfilled by the community of good neighbors, mm -hmm. a chance to do some of that activism work within the city of Buffalo. Yeah. Tell me more what that looks like. So one of the main things that we're involved in is food sustainability. And so I took on CGN in August of 2021. We began to continue the work of doing the food pantry and turn into a mobile food pantry. So we were out on the east side, primarily at 3 Dote Street, continuing that work. And by that, not only just, we weren't just feeding people because I know I've had conversations with my community where they've gone to food pantries um, and they've been shunned, they've been ridiculed. They were told, well, 
in order for you to get this food, we need you to come to church. Like all that. The whole point of a mobile food pantry or any food pantry is to make sure that your siblings in humanity have the same amount to eat as you do. And so we go, I went out and I started having conversations with folks and providing, whether it's non-perishable to perishable food, and then incorporating other folks like Voice Buffalo to come out and connect with folks. So they like, here's your community organizer. I would talk with folks, and it's sort of almost like an interfaith group because I have different people of different cultures coming. So it's not just African-Americans, it's other folks that are coming. So I always try to make sure that I'm open to all and using proper language. Um, I'm hoping one day to do even more. Um, but <laughs> if I start thinking about it, I'll get very overwhelmed. <laughs> but um, we have now this new bus. It's as soon as I can get the insurance and the registration and the plates, I can actually put my bus out on the road because right now we've been using a van um, lent us by Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Um, but having this bus out means I'll be able to do more. I'll be able to be more spaces. Um, and I also hope to be part of the voice and uplifting their voices to say, we still have issues. People think 514 happened, all this money supposedly flooded into the community. I'm telling you right now, every week I'm getting new people added on to my community. Many new households. I started with 50, 50 households. That doesn't represent the number of people. That just means household, like a representative. I now have 171 households represented. And every week I'm adding more people. So people are still combating food instability on the east side. And this program has oftentimes pointed to things like that, mm -hmm. talked about things like that, and ultimately said it is at the hands of racism. I, I apologize every time I say it because I don't want to impugn any particular community. So generically speaking, people on the east side probably have heard this message. Mm -hmm. What about the guy in, here it is, generically, Orchard Park, East Aurora, Arcade, Darien? How do we as a broader community talk more about race. One of the things I tell a number of the folks who volunteer for CGN or maybe want to bring their church group, I tell them the first thing they need to do, they need to do anti-racism work in their community. Because what I don't want to have happen, them come, come in and paint the fence and say, look what we did. I don't want that. I want them to come and see these people as real people. And I also had another colleague tell me as they were gathering up fresh produce that they had they were in a rural part of the state, um, and as they came in, um, as they came in, um, they were having conversations about bringing all this produce. One of the congregational members said, "Well, why can't we keep it out here? Why do we have to take it to Buffalo to those people?" Oh, and she said, "Actually, use those words." Yeah, and she said, she told him, she said, "We've already taken care of our people here, so what are we going to do? Let all this produce rot, or, or are we going to do what we're supposed to do?" And they couldn't argue with it. So, yes, there are probably people in other communities that maybe are impacted by economic means, financial. But I think we have to also realize that it's not the people on the east side that are causing the issue. It's systemically in our system, in our judicial system, in our legislative system, in our laws. That is the problem. But what, what spark do we need to ignite that conversation? I don't know. Because I could come, I'll give you another example. Right after 514, I was designated to do pulpit supply at a, a congregation in the, I keep saying rural area, and I know the suburbs, but you know, yeah, from no, Chicago, cool. so yeah. like, 
20 minutes is still Chicago. 20 minutes out here is like a whole other place. Yeah. Um, and they were questioning why my husband was sitting in the, in the pastor's office. And I told them the reason why my husband comes to me, especially when I come out here, because he doesn't trust anyone. You all may welcome me as an all-white congregation, but your neighbors will see me and will call me a racial, a racial name. They will, they will say, say stuff to me that you will be shocked by. My husband fears for my safety. That's why he's here. And they started weeping. I'm hoping that those stories spark something. For some people, it may spark like we've got to do better. For some people, they may dismiss it and say, oh, well, they don't understand. Or it's not my fault. I don't have any privilege. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So I, I, I don't know what's going to spark it. I can, I can be very public and open and talk with other congregations, but also it's not my work to do. It's the work of my colleagues who are white who have to have the conversations with their congregations, not me. Because I can tell my story, but the work they need to do, they need to do, as we like to say, white folks' work. White folks have to lead that conversation so they can have some very frank and open conversations about, yes, you may not be racist, but you have thought things like that. Your neighbor is more open than you are. Reverend Pitts, thanks so much for your time. This has been, we've got to have you back. This was a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so I much. I didn't even get to ask you how a female woman of color has a male name like Kwame Nkrumah. Okay. So. But we'll get to that in another okay, conversation. Okay. We okay. will have you back. Okay. We'll have you back. I appreciate your time. Thank you. The Reverend Kwame Pitts. I spoke with her back in January on the National Day of Racial Healing. And that will do it for today's program. Buffalo What's Next is WBFO's weekday discussion on race, culture, and our shared humanity. Heard each weekday morning at 10 and again each night at 9. It's also a podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or just listen online on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening. This is WBFO News History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events from the week for the listening area. I'm your host and WBFO News Program Director, Tom Barich. February 27, 1900, none other than magician Harry Houdini plays a sold-out show at Shea's Garden in Buffalo, New York. On February 28, 1959, Kate Robinson Butler, publisher of the Buffalo News, meets with Cuban leader Fidel Castro in Cuba. Born in the town of Royalton, New York, in Niagara County, lawyer and women's rights advocate Belva Ann Lockwood is the first woman to argue a case before the Supreme Court on March 3, 1879. And if you think that's an impressive feat for Belva, she also happened to be the first woman to run for the office of President of the United States for the National Equal Rights Party. Here's another impressive feat on March 4, 1930. Emma Fawning becomes the first woman on record to bowl a perfect game, and it happened at the Women's International Bowling Congress in Buffalo, New York. You've been listening to WBFO History Bite. A thank you goes out to the Buffalo History Museum for research and support. For WBFO News, I'm Tom Barrage.